Welcome to Beyond Your News Feed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. I'm William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. In this episode, we're going to do something a little different. Rather than analyze political events in the news, as we usually do on Beyond Your News Feed, we are going to take a deep dive into the history of the Providence College Political Science Department. So listener alert, this episode probably will be most interesting to current PC students, our alumni, parents, and our PC colleagues, our our political science colleagues. These are the folks who have had experience with our department and might be the most curious about how it has evolved over the years. Admittedly, this will be an exercise in nostalgia. My guests and I are going to reminisce about our experiences at Providence College and our work in the political science department going back 50 years, a long time. We hope our memories will open up to our listeners some understanding about how departments work and the many and diverse ways professors go about inspiring and enlightening their students. To join me in this conversation, I've invited two retired colleagues and old friends, Professor Emeritus Mark Hyde, and Professor Emeritus Robert Trudeau. Bob and Mark have been retired for a few years, but we taught in the poli-sci department together from the 1970s through the 2000s. Before we begin our conversation, I would like to say a few words about each of my colleagues. Professor Hyde was the poli-sci department's specialist in political parties and interest groups and state politics. He also taught our political science methods course in its various iterations over the course of his career. Mark was one of our most effective and popular teachers, earning the college's Achino Award for Teaching Excellence in 2011. He established the department's internship program, which he oversaw for many years, and based on his experience with our program, helped to establish the college's internship program. Mark published numerous articles on state interest group politics, state economic development, and teaching methods. His textbook on political science methods, co-authored with our colleague Jim Carlson, continues to be used in our methods course today. Professor Trudeau was the department's Latin American politics expert, teaching courses on that topic, as well as comparative politics, American politics, and methods. He established the department's model OAS program, preparing a team of PC students each year to travel to Washington, D.C. for the Model Organization of American States. He also was a member of the faculty student planning team that established the Feinstein Institute for Public Service and taught in the public and community service program for several years. Bob was a leader in an effort to create an American Political Science Association annual conference on teaching and learning. Uh, which is in place today. He has published many articles on Latin American politics and on teaching methods, and is the author of Guatemalan Politics, The Popular Struggle for Democracy. He continues to write in retirement, publishing recently, The Grateful Dead's 100 Essential Songs. And I'm sure Bob will say a few things about The Grateful Dead during our conversation. I will insist on it. It is great pleasure to welcome to the podcast my two colleagues who have taught me so much about teaching and about how to be a political scientist. Professor Bob Trudeau and Professor Mark Hyde, welcome to Beyond Your News Feed. Thank you, Bill. 
Thank you, Bill. I think I've listened to just about every one of the episodes in this podcast series, so I'm happy to now be creating one. Thank you. It's nothing like a professor emeritus to be a loyal listener. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so to start off, we're, we're going way back in time. Uh, before we began, uh, Professor Hyde reminded us that had we done this podcast in 1970, when we started at PC, we would be talking about events back in the 1920s, which sound, sounded seemed very remote to us at the time. So uh, our, for our listeners, we understand that we may be talking about ancient history here for a lot of people. But anyway, uh, going back to 1970, both, both of you fellows joined the faculty the same year, uh, academic year 1970-71. Uh, first of all, I'd like to know what brought you to Providence College? Why did you take the job here, if you can remember? A job offer. <laughs> well, let me say something. It, it's Mark. Well, let me say something about that. I do have something to say. Um, I was born and raised in New England, and my first priority for having a job was to get back to New England, which didn't make my graduate student professors too happy. They were insisting that I go to some major university and become a faculty member at a place that granted uh, PhDs. And I did have offers um, in other places, Georgia and uh, California, one in a small school in Massachusetts. But PC fit the requirements that I wanted. New England, uh, it turned out I liked Providence, and uh, it was a small liberal arts college. I was always happy after I made that decision. Okay, good. And so what was Providence College like in 1970? What are your first memories of arriving on campus? Bob, you want to begin? A couple of things. Well, first of all, it was all male. The student body was all male. In fact, probably the faculty was all male. <clears throat> Excuse me. I can't think of any female faculty member from that year. There probably are some. I just don't remember. The first woman faculty member was Sister Leslie, and she probably started a couple of years after 1970. Yeah, that's possible. Mm -hmm. uh, I was thinking of Jane Lunan Perel as well. She, she was very early, but I don't think they were there in the fall of 70. Um, the, the second thing is not only was it all male, it, it was much more heavily commuter so that uh, a, lot of, a lot of young men from Rhode Island were graduating from LaSalle, wearing their LaSalle jackets when they got to PC. And, and so the, the campus looked like that. I think the third thing is that there was a lot of political fervent, more than I had expected when I interviewed and took the job because this was the first semester back in school after the, I believe, after the Kent State Cambodian shutdowns of the previous spring. Yep. So things were exciting. Um, I remember being told I was only the second faculty member to have a beard. Uh, which led to some interesting anecdotes. Um, and, and, and like Mark, I was very happy to be back in New England. <clears throat> I was born and raised in New England as well and wanted to come back. And this seemed like a, a really excellent opportunity. Mark, anything to add about those reflections? Of well, I, I, agree with, I agree with Bob. I, I should have mentioned another reason I chose PC for the job offer they gave me was because in the spring prior to when we got there, the president of the college, who then was uh, William Haas, 
had called off final exams in the spring because of the invasion of Cambodia and Kent State and so on. So I, I was expecting it was going to be a little more of a hotbed of, uh, of um, protest than it turned out to be. <laughs> I didn't think it was all that much. But anyway, um, the other thing that surprised me was, and I should have expected this, but I didn't, was a number of students who were first-time um, college uh, attendees. They, they were the first ones in their family. Um, a lot of them had uh, uh, were not widely read. Uh, a lot of them didn't read newspapers. Their parents were working class. And I found it uh, in those first few years very refreshing to be teaching people like this, uh, which uh those kind of students waned over the years however yeah that i started in 1974 four years after both of you and i i remember that environment of the commuter student by that time providence college said it was co-ed right the college went co-ed in fall of 71 all of 71 so that the second year you were on the faculty and we can talk about what difference that made uh, for you all but i remember uh, the 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 kind of students we had, and and one memory I had when I started in 1974, I hadn't finished my PhD, so I was not uh, Dr. William Hudson officially, but nevertheless, uh, most of my students in my class always said, "Hey, Doc," I was Doc Hudson uh, to, to all of them, uh, and that was uh, that was Doc, not Rock. Doc, right? <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, and so in 1970, when you got here, uh, I, I looked into the, I got some help from the college archivist to find out about the true origins of the department. I thought that would be of interest to our listeners, since this is on the history of the department. The department actually began in 1955, uh, chaired by Father John Mahoney, OP, who we remember as the political theorist in the department when when both of you joined and I joined, and he was the first department chair back in 1955. Uh, but uh, the fellow that hired us, uh, the late uh, Dr. Zygmunt Friedman, uh, had become department chair in 1966. And I think you'll agree with me, Mark and Bob, that, that uh, Professor Friedman, who we affectionately called Ziggy, everybody called him Ziggy, uh, even when he was uh, a state representative at the Rhode Island State House, uh, but but Ziggy was responsible for the professionalization of the department. That he began insisting on hiring PhDs and and uh, and and the like. Uh, any any thoughts about Professor Friedman? Uh, who hired both of you? You want to add to my brief memories? Uh, well, you're absolutely right. I think he's responsible for the professionalization of the department. Um, it, it, uh, I, I found him on a personal level to be very generous, always. Um, very much supportive of the college. And, uh, and I, I, I think generally um, he was attempting to build a better department than he inherited, which is not a bad thing. He wanted, uh, it was my impression that he wanted PhDs that came from, I don't know what the right adjective is, uh, uh, more well-known or more big time universities. And 
I was coming from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, so that that was a feather in his cap at that time to get somebody from that kind of school. Same thing with Michigan State, where Mark was coming from. Uh, so we were we were kind of big time hires in that sense. Uh, and then you know, and 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 I think a, a few years later, when Bill, you started. Uh, that's kind of when we had a first wave of real growth and ratcheting up the expertise of the people in the department. Yeah, and we should say at that time, uh, not all departments at Providence College hired professionally or no. tried to recruit from major universities. There were only two departments at the time that had all PhDs on the faculty, yeah. including political science. Psychology and political Psychology science. was the other. Right. So it was, uh, it was really uh, transformative for the institution as well as you know, the department. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, he, he always was also transformative for the students. In one way in particular, I remember long after I was hired, I learned that one of the reasons he wanted me on the faculty was that I had been the president of the Pi Sigma Alpha Honor Society, Political Science Honor Society at Michigan State. And he hoped that because of that um, position I had held, I could help get a chapter of the college, uh, the chapter of the, uh, of the Honor Society at Providence College, which we did. But I, I thought that was very forward thinking of him. And also his attempt to be more have more professional standards in the department and have the students um, recognize those. Uh, yeah, and uh, Pi Sigma Alpha started then, and, and it's uh, going on today. Uh, just tomorrow, uh, tomorrow we're going to have a uh, the induction ceremony for this year's Pi Sigma Alpha uh, inductees. So, uh, you know, it's going strong at Providence College. Um, so, uh, the year after you arrived, women came. Uh, I presume that was a welcome change. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It uh, was. Let, let me say something about that, though. Over the years, I've thought about that, Bill, in terms of the of the of the women arriving. It certainly made Providence College a better place, a more interesting place. Um, ultimately, by the time I retired, there were more women than men, and the the women were uh, it seemed to dominate the awards in terms of uh, scholastic and, and and academic achievement and so on. But after a few years, I wondered what it was like for those first women who came to PC. I wonder if they had to suffer some of the, of the problems that came with that. And that I'm not sure if I look back and some of them I've talked to, not many, but some of them, they might not have been as happy as the rest of us that there were women on campus. Yeah, I write, when I arrived, it was their senior year. So, but I remember in the first classes I taught, uh, that first year, uh, those women were quite remarkable, really good students. Uh, and, uh, and I remember them, some of them still today, the, the really good students. I had them, particularly I taught, one of the first classes I taught was public administration. And there were some very outstanding women students in that class. Uh, so... In preparing for today, I went back in my files and found my original grade book from 1974. 
Your what? What's a grade book? What's a grade book? Green, little green book that I used. Uh, and I have three of them. I, they lasted. I used them up through the 1990s, evidently, and then then went computered. I got got computerized. But I was looking at the grades for the first American government course I taught, and there's clear evidence from my first semester that there has been great inflation at Providence College because in the first section of American government I taught, which included 32 students, which is much larger than our sections today, I only gave three A's, a bunch of C's, um, and that certainly isn't the case with, I doubt that's gonna be the case with the, the American government sections I'm teaching this semester probably a lot higher grades. So Well, Bill, when I was in my second year, I had three sections of American government. One third of those students flunked or had incompletes. The dean of the college, then Fabian Cunningham, called me into his office and asked me to explain why the students were doing so poorly. I don't remember what I said, but <laughs> I think the students are better now as well as grade inflation going on. Yeah. Well, anyway, it was just eye-opening to, to see that and remember things were happening. So part, part of the difference also, maybe another variable in, in that equation is that uh, one of the things that one of you mentioned a few moments ago, that the student body has changed. At, when you started, there still was a high, relatively high proportion of students who were the first person in college. And, you know, not coming from a culture where that kind of academic activity is is part of the daily fabric um, compared to now when uh, I'd be surprised if there were very many people at all in the current student body who are the first person in their immediate family or close family that has been to a university. So they're far more sophisticated when they got to campus and far more easy, far more able, I think, to figure out, you know, how you get an A or a B. And that, of course, we, we lived through that change in the student body, which was really quite, it's been quite dramatic uh, from primarily commuter school in the 1970s to we have hardly any Rhode Island residents anymore uh, in the student body, a very small percentage. Uh, and we now recruit from all over the country. And that certainly wasn't the case back in the 1970s. And I think you're right that it, the students who are coming to Providence College now are academically much better prepared than the students we taught. Uh, early on, although there were some outstanding students, I remember from those days, uh, who became very successful uh, alums over the years. Um, Bill, would you call the changes in the student body progress? In some ways, yes, in the sense that in terms of pure, purely academic measures, I guess. Uh, on the other hand, <clears throat> I think I miss the ways in which the college served the local community in those days, uh, and that we really were, uh, you know, we really were, were kind of the door that opened uh, a different future for those, you know, young men and women back then, whereas I think a lot of the students we have now are, are wherever they would have gone to college, they're on the track to, you know, be part of the, you know, upper middle class professionals. Uh, who they're going to become, uh, but becoming a, a professional 
for our students back in the 1970s was a, a, a real, a, a, a bit of, was, was social mobility. That was not the case with their parents. And, and so that, that, that was a contribution that we, that we made. And, and now the college struggles to do the same thing by uh, actively trying to recruit uh, students who are first generation students um, so that we can, at least for a portion of the student body, uh, provide that same opportunity. But it was pretty universal, universal in the 1970s. So uh, Mark, you made reference to the uh, sort of the professionalization of the faculty and, and the sort of expansion of the political science department. So uh, both of you were hired in 1970, I came on in 1974. And then after that, we also hired some new young faculty who, who sort of filled out the department and became our colleagues for many years. And I'm thinking about Professor Bellhouse, uh, who came on, I think, a couple of years after me, and then Professor Jim Carlson, uh, who we, we added, uh, and became kind of the core of the department for the next really 30 years, right? Well, I, I think you're correct, Bill. Um, and that was one of the important parts of professionalizing and upgrading the department. Um, I think in 1970, I don't think there were any faculty, maybe one who had actually published an article in a referee journal. Uh, most of them concentrated on their teaching and not on research. And then Bob and I uh, started some of that. Um, and when you came in, you were publishing and Mary, we encouraged and she did. But the one who made a big difference, I think was Jim Carlson. He was intent on doing research, intent on doing um, good work. And I remember he would go up and down the hall when he was drinking his coffee, knock on the door of a fellow faculty member, walk in and say, how's your research going? And um, it was kind of awkward if you didn't have anything to say. <laughs> so I think that uh, I think that he contributed greatly to that. And then it, it, it I mean, it, it created an atmosphere in the department among the faculty that doing research was an important part of your job and that we were, I don't wanna say less, but I don't think we thought of ourselves at that point as Providence College faculty members. I think we thought of ourselves as political scientists, members of a profession who happened to be practicing our craft at Providence College. Um, I don't say that to, to um, you know, in any way demean the, idea being, uh, demean the idea of being a faculty member of Providence College, but I think that changed. Um, and then um, when we had that core together, then hiring became much easier um, because we had people doing research, we had people doing good teaching, and we had young faculty, member who wanted to come, faculty members who wanted to come and join us. And I think it had an impact on the institution too, because uh, you mentioned psychology with our department of psychology, recruiting professionally and doing research. Uh, that encouraged the administration to uh, to, to value that uh, across the institution. And it actually took, took a couple of decades before that that took hold. But by the 1990s, uh, you know, virtually all the departments began to look more and more like political science. Yes, and I, from my, if I uh, remember correctly, 
we had a set of standards, a set of uh, we had a uh, yeah set of standards, but that we followed to, um, to followed in our hiring practices, and different departments in the college adopted that as to how they wanted to pursue it. Um, so I think we did provide a model in some ways. Yeah, actually, in the in the 1990s, both our hiring procedures and I, we also had specific uh, procedures for tenure and promotion, which was an innovation. Other departments did not have those, and the the vice president for academic affairs at that at that time uh, took our procedures and used them as a model for the rest of the college and said, and it became a mandate eventually that all departments had to develop written. Uh, procedures and for tenure and promotion and our ours were the template uh, initially and and I think that the department had that uh, effect on the inst institution um, maybe we could talk a little bit uh, in terms of research I, I also you mentioned professor Carlson the other really great contribution of uh, that Jim made I think was the way he uh, involved students in his research uh, he always had student research assistants from the very beginning, and he would get them involved in his projects and would co-author articles with him. Uh, and that was, and being uh, Professor Carlson's research assistant was a real feather in the cap for some a lot of our students who, who did that. And then later themselves went on to become political scientists, um, which was also uh, really something gratifying that our own students got PhDs in political science and are out there in the profession today. Uh, some at very uh, prestigious universities. I, I can't say we were unique at the college doing that sort of thing, but uh, you, you could make the same statement about Mark's history with research assistants as well. Not Jim and Mark both did that together. Well, Bill, I want to, I want to give credit to one other um, department here. We've, we've all mentioned psychology um, in terms of, a department that was a, a professional model before we were. And when I first became the chair of the department, which was 1978, I wanted to um, use psychology as a plan for how we were going to become more professional. I didn't quite know how to do it. And one of the, the thorny things for me was a budget. I knew that Psychology had a lot of research assistants. They had lab space. They had all kinds of things. And so I had gotten to know people in psychology from a, a National Science Foundation program we ran one summer that included all the social sciences. So something extraordinary happened. I went to talk to the then chair of the department, George Raymond. And George did something I've never seen anybody do before. He said, Mark, I'm going to show you my budget. And he took it out and he put it on the desk and he went through me with, you know, went through it with me line by line. Not that I wanted to copy it, but when I got to the um, meetings on budgets and I had proposed a budget, I, I knew what, what somebody else had and I knew um, how long they had it. And I knew the arguments they had used to get it. And that was extraordinarily helpful. We should also mention chemistry here. Chemistry was doing a lot of uh, research, you know, going back to the 1960s even. So, so uh, I, I, I think know. at the beginning when we got to PC, chemistry was offering a PhD. Yeah, for a while they did, yeah. Uh, so in, in terms of research, 
probably ought to talk a little bit about the origins of the data center. Uh, Mark, and you were instrumental in putting that together. Um, maybe you want to reminisce a little bit about how that got going. Actually, I, I, I think if I can interject before Mark gives some of the real particulars that Jim Carlson was looking for a place to store his data. There was a closet across the hall from his office. And one of us said, let's put a sign on it that says political science data center. <laughs> and that's how it started. Well, that's, Bob's right. That's exactly how it got started. And Jim and I had talked about, um, I mean, this is long before, uh, you know, individual personal computers and so on. So we were dealing with a lot of computer cards and complicated uh uh, maneuvers to get over to the mainframe computer and so on. But anyway, that's exactly what happened. Jim and I decided we wanted to open this data center, but we didn't want to go through all the administrative nonsense. So that's what we did. There was a closet. I measured it. It was eight feet long and four feet wide. And I called physical plant, which again, there was not a lot of bureaucracy in those days, asked them if they could put a light in there. They did. Um, we found a small desk. Uh, put it in there. Um, we hung a sign that said uh, um, political science data center. But before that, we hung across the opening of the closet, uh, some computer cards stapled together. And I used my Swiss army knife to cut them when we had the grand opening. <laughs> then two things happened that were important. One, we'll talk about internships later, but I was down at the state house and I mean, this closet was small. We, we hired two young women. One was Ann Martino, who later went on to get a PhD at Maryland in political science. And they were jam she was jammed in this closet. And so I was walking down uh, by the Secretary of State's office in the State House, and I found these boxes. They were out in the hallway. And I looked at them, and there were election returns in there. And so I went in, and I asked what was going on. I said, oh, they're old ones. We're going to throw them away. There were election returns from 1909 up to whatever, 1970. So... I put them in my car. I said, could I have them? They said, sure, we're going to dump them. Put them in my car, came back to the campus, went to administrative office and said, we had just received the donation of election returns from the state of Rhode Island. And then I went to the next office and said, and we don't have any place to keep them. And this little office we have is too small. And by then they had heard of this bill because we did another administrative thing. Jim decided I was going to be the director. And so as soon as that happened, I would send out memos to Jim or to somebody else and sign it, director of the political science data center, and put copies to the dean, to this vice president, to that vice president. So after a while, everybody knew that there was a data center. Nobody knew where it came from. But, um, and, it, and it was. It was a, a real boon to research. We ended up with quite a bit of space. We hired a lot of students. They did a lot of work for us. Um, it, it was really well done. And, and one more thing in terms of professionalization, we had, by this time, people in the department were appearing at meetings, you know, national meetings, American Political Science Association, and so on. So we had covers made that said Providence College Political Science Data Center. And all the papers that were put out for people to pick up in those days, because there wasn't, uh, there weren't computers, had Political Science Data Center Providence College on them. So we did make an impact. One more thing. Bob knows this. Bob, tell him the story of the article in the APSA newsletter. What, what article? <laughs> well, this was so unique, I guess. We didn't think of it as unique. No. But you were the one who suggested we write an article for the APSA newsletter about teaching. 
And we wrote, you and Jim and I wrote an article about how we had set up this data center for undergraduates at Providence College. Right. Got a lot of positive review. Um, Matter of fact, it got me a speaking engagement one time. So that helped. The the two things to see in that history are not only did Mark start us on the road of learning how to do a budget, which I certainly never learned anything about as a graduate student or as a young faculty member, and the art of maneuvering through the institutional bureaucracy that we worked, I don't know, under, (laughs) within, and sending copies to everybody, talking up things. Um, I remember one anecdote, and I, I can't remember this in exact detail, but in the around the middle 70s, or maybe even a little later than that, one of the people in the administration, when we were we were by then familiar, they were we were familiar faces to people in Harkins Hall because we were either writing to them all the time or talking to them or whatever, being on committees. One of them told me that in the previous academic year, the political science department had used, I think, either, either one third or half of the total travel budget for professional conferences. Now Partly that's a statement about how small that amount, of, that total amount of money was for the college. But the other side of it is that we were really going out and doing things. And, and that was being recognized. And I remember that. And the data center also uh, helped, helped out all the political science faculty because it was a resource that permitted research projects that couldn't have happened otherwise. And I'm thinking, Mark, of our project that went on for several years of analyzing the greenhouse compact. Uh, which was, which certainly got a lot of publications for me and you too. Uh, and I, and in fact, it was the, it was the project that made me a full professor because we produced enough research out of that project, which uh, for listeners, it was analyzing a, an attempt to uh, establish a, a, a unique uh, economic development project in Rhode Island. And uh, uh, Professor Hyde and a, a colleague uh, at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, John Carroll, the three of us worked on that for uh, several years. And, and a lot of the research was survey-based. We did surveys of Rhode Islanders about their attitudes towards this economic development effort. And we couldn't have done it without the data center because it provided, uh, actually there were students employed there who could uh, do the phone surveys. In those days you could do uh, landline surveys that actually worked, uh, and none of that could have happened if we didn't didn't have that there. Um, so I've I've always been grateful that 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 resource was there and uh, helped make me a professional success. You forgot to mention, Bill, that all that research started with one seminal article that you wrote about industrial policy, and you came up with. I mean, it was enough to write the article, but then near the end, you came up with testable propositions, empirical propositions based upon your review. And that's what allowed the research to get going. I also remember, here's a difference between you and me as a political scientist, Bill. Not that I'm, well, you've always been very thoughtful. You've always thought things through extremely well, committed to the craft, wanting to contribute to the discipline and so on. And when you tried to recruit or did recruit John, um, Carol and I to get in on this project, you explained why you wanted to do it in those terms. And you asked us to explain why we wanted to do it. And my response was, 
I want to get so many professional papers and articles in in uh, uh, journals that I can't keep count of them. <laughs> and we did. Yeah. Plus op-ed piece, plus a chapter in a book. Plus we got interviewed in the, um, the Chronicle of Higher Education. Yeah, I don't remember the number of articles we produced, but it was a substantial number. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was uh, good. And it's probably thanks to that, that uh, you're Professor Emeritus, Professor Hyde, so. I, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm Thank counting, you, Bill. I'm, I'm counting on the same uh, the same benefit. Uh, in right, our, the, the momentum is going. Don't worry about it. Okay. Uh, all right. For, well, this this is enough back padding here. Uh, let's get down to business. Talk about other things we're, that were going on. So internships, Mark. That was a really uh, important thing that you you made those connections to the state house and. And, and that also was an innovation at the college. There weren't very many uh, departments that had uh, credit-bearing internship programs like ours was. Well, um, I, I knew very little about internships when I got to PC. And I don't know who it was, but somebody suggested uh, that I be the faculty representative from Providence College at the Rhode Island State Internship Program, which was in existence and included interns from all of the state colleges and universities, Brown, URI, and so on. And we would have seminars on a Monday afternoon uh, where the various faculty members would lead the seminar and so on. Through that, I could see the value of internships. They're well known now. Um, but I found from the people who were sponsoring the interns um, and the interns themselves that the best internship and sometimes the only successful internship had to have some consequences with it. It had to have academic credit because if it didn't, the sponsors couldn't count on the people coming all the time. And the students thought that they deserve credit for putting in this. And then I had to agree with them. So in the department, not just myself, we came up with um, a way to uh, provide credit for the students um, and then we expanded that to internships in the summertime. Oh, we expanded that to participate in the Washington semester program at American University. Um, and through that whole process, we came up with a set of guidelines as we had for hiring and tenure and promotion, so on. And ultimately those were adopted around the college for other departments to um, give credit to their students. To put that slightly differently, the political science department was perhaps ahead of the curve when it came to experiential learning and wanting to factor that into our overall curriculum. Yeah, I, I should have said that. Experiential learning, I don't think when I started doing interns, I had heard that term experiential learning. It came afterwards. And ultimately, I mean, it, it, it expanded right up into the Feinstein Institute. So, um, yeah, I, I think it, I guess it had uh, branches that I never thought about, Bob. Yeah, and that the Feinstein Institute was also, a, you know, a real innovation of the college and, and put the college on the map for experiential learning and service learning. And and Bob, you were participated with me on the planning team for that endeavor, um, along with some other faculties, faculty members, but. I think we drew on our political science experience a lot. In oh, we did. We did endlessly. I remember so many of those meetings with the other people on that committee explaining that, you know, you had to have a budget <laughs> or you had to think about 
relationships with other departments and offices at the college in, in uh, trying to create you know, a professional new department basically is ultimately what we ended up doing. That was, uh, that was as exciting an academic year as I can remember because uh, we were dealing with real money. We were dealing with real potential programs that were going to be outstanding if we got them implemented the way we had, had designed it. Uh, and it, I think it's turned out pretty well. I, I'm very, I'm actually, that's one of the things I'm proudest about at my, my time at PC was being involved with the Feinstein Institute right from the start. We had to design a new curriculum for the public and community service program. Which, which the, and the Feinstein Institute is go, going strong, uh, you know, today. So, which is, in a way, I remember back 30 years ago when we were getting it going, uh, we weren't sure whether or not it would take hold or, or last, and it's certainly gratifying to me as well that it's continued. Uh, maybe we could we talk a little more about departmental alums and relating to students after they leave the college. Mark, you always maintained close relationships with uh, your students after they left PC, and and how important was that to you as a as a professor? Well, it, the, first of all, it was just fun. Um, I. For the most part, I enjoyed all of my students um, and some good students, some not so good. But um, yeah, especially the ones who went into academia, I, I would keep in touch with them. And, and, and uh, I was always happy to see them succeeding, doing the things they wanted to do. I was especially pleased by two things. One, they said that in my courses they had learned, especially in the methods course, they had learned some things about political science that otherwise they would not have known and that this was very important for them when they got to graduate school. Um, and so I, I always felt that I had made a contribution there and that um, they always had fond memories of the political science in general. Um, they would, whenever I see them, people ask me about, about you, they ask me about Bob, they ask me about Jim Carlson. Um, and I think they've done a good job in terms of spreading the word about Providence College and the political science department as well. Yeah, it certainly made its, uh, made our presence in the discipline. I know when I go to meetings of the American Political Science Association, it's always nice to run into one of our former students walking down the hall and uh, uh, just encountering them by chance. And there are enough out there that that always happens every time I go to an APSA meeting. So, uh, do we, we want to talk anything about computers? Any thoughts about how the world of computing has changed? You mentioned the, uh, the, the, da the data cards uh, and using a mainframe uh, in the old days. Uh, and uh, that evolved rather quickly uh, in the 1980s, later 1980s and 1990s. Uh, any thoughts about that, either of you? Well, the, the reason we had a data center at first was at one point, I think we had 16 or 17 students working there. It, it took a lot of people power to get a data-based project going. You had to have computer cards. Well, first of all, you had to take the raw data, put it in coding sheets, big sheets with numbers representing all the answers to a survey, for example. Then you had to um, punch those into a card machine that put little holes in the cards. So this was read by a another machine that had little brushes and could make electrical connections. And then when that was done, well, then um, it, it, 
when the cards were ready, had to go to a separate building where there was a computer, mainframe computer, and leave them there. Now, th- there, there would be sometimes be thousands of cards, hundreds or thousands of cards. And if you had made one mistake, a single mistake, the computer would kick it out and you had to go back, get your um, printout and go back to see what was wrong. I mean, there were no programs like uh, data analysis programs like SAS or SPS or R now is the big one. Um, so, so yeah, we, it, it was difficult. And the computing power of that main uh, frame computer was equivalent to probably 10% of my iPhone. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But one more example, Bill, of uh, maneuvering around in the administration. <clears throat> one of the first uh, early programs for data analysis used by political scientists was called SPSS, Statistical Package for the Social Sciences. And we were using the Brown University computer at the data center. The college had, had uh, arranged that for us. But we wanted our own version of SPSS so we could stay on campus and so on. So we went to talk to the head of the computer department. He said he was familiar with it, but it would take about a year to install it. <laughs> and so I was talking to Bob about that. And Bob had a friend from graduate school who ended up at Rick as the head of the computer department. And so we went over to see Peter Harmon, his name was, we went over to see him. And without giving him any background, we asked him how long it would take once he got SPSS in his hands to get it up on a computer. And he said, oh, maybe an afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually his assistant became head of computing at Providence College. So we got our, our SPSS <laughs> program. <laughs> yeah. Um- Okay. Oh, model OAS, Bob. Tell us about the origins of model OAS because oh, that's another well, program you started and yeah. and and remains a, a very popular program at at the college today. Yeah, the model OAS is also part of the experiential education uh, line of thinking. In this case, the the experience was to be a diplomat, and so every spring we would recruit ten students to be the official representatives of a particular country in the Western Hemisphere uh, from Canada to Argentina. And uh, we would train on how to become diplomats and how to learn everything about the country that we were representing and how to learn who would be our friends and who would not be our friends in the Organization of American States. And then go to Washington and meet with similar delegations from universities from all over the hemisphere. So every year, I think, getting to go to DC for the Model OAS event, simulation of the General Assembly of the Organization of American States, was really a highlight for the students who went through, I always thought, a very interesting series of stages in their preparation. At the beginning, it sounded like fun then the workload seemed overwhelming because there's a lot to learn. Uh, Nobody would come into that class knowing very much about the country that we were representing, especially if it was a Caribbean island or or one of the smaller states. And then they got excited as they started to learn it. And then all of a sudden they realized they were going to have to show off this learning in front of their colleagues in Washington over the course of five days. And then it got scary And I found that I really had to offer, 
I had to do very little in terms of getting people to actually study. First of all, I, I had the luxury, a rare luxury for a, for, a, for a college professor of basically picking the students I wanted in that class. And so I would always pick 10 or a dozen people that I thought were, were pretty good students and uh, self-starters, people who would take on responsibility and, and act accordingly. And they did. Uh, but it was the fear of not doing well in Washington, I think, that got a lot of people, <laughs> which may have been a good introduction to their life after, after college when they were in the workplace, that you have to perform in front of other people. It's one of the joys of life. But yeah, the model OAS has been going. We've been, PC's been sending delegations since I think the early 1980s. I was trying to think yesterday, Bill, after you emailed us some archive things, when we actually started participating, but it's at least the early 1980s, give or take. And so that's, that's kind of a long time, over 30 years now. And I'm happy to, happy to see it's still continuing after I retired. That was really important to me. Yeah, we, we today have two very good Latin American specialists, Professor Casey Stevens and Professor Theo Rio Francos. And they both have taken delegations down, follow your model, Bob, of, of students. And it's still as uh, exciting for those students today as it was uh, you know, when it got it going. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know how long you wanna go on here with our, our discussion, but I, I think the theme here that we're, we're we've developing is uh, sort of institutional development, how you sort of plant the seeds of institutional growth and how that, eventually, you know, takes off. And I think that's what happened, you know, over the course of our careers that from the 1970s into the 1990s, we kind of set the seeds, planted the seeds, we created the framework for the department uh, to make it what it is today, which I think is a, you know, outstanding department. Um, um, I'm, of the three of us, I'm the one who remains in the faculty, I'm not yet retired. And my young colleagues who are you know, the, the, the follow-up generation are just astounding in terms of their, uh, their abilities, their training, their, 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 their teaching ability uh, in every way. And, and I like to think that we kind of gave them a good foundation to build on and then they're, and they're doing it. So uh, for any listener who has a son or daughter, uh, you might want to go come to Providence College, uh, come to Providence College and I studied political science. I also point out if you if you if anybody listening wants to see any of that of the younger faculty in action, listen to the early episodes of this podcast. Some of them are outstanding. Yeah, and actually, the idea for the podcast was, in fact, to showcase our young faculty. That was exactly why I started this two years ago, uh, and it's now branched out uh, to other departments as well, because there are many outstanding faculty in other departments. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be uh, too parochial here about political science. Um, the beat goes on. And it, so it is. Uh, well, I'd like to add something about building a foundation. It wasn't until after I left uh, the college and retired that I began to think about uh, how I'd gotten there and so on. And when I came out of graduate school, initially what I wanted was to get into the best get onto the best faculty that I could, get into uh, teach at some department in some college that had a lot of status and so on and so forth. I think what I realized after a while was it actually worked the other way. 
that I ended up in a college, and Providence College was not an outstanding liberal arts college in 1970, and that we in the political science department, you, Bob, me, Jim, Mary, and everybody else who joined, um, contributed to making Providence College and the political science department a higher status department than when we got there. So it didn't, I didn't get any status from getting a job at PC, but I think that PC got some status because all of us were there. And we should add the, we mentioned the Feinstein program, our contribution to that, but a lot of the other, uh, pro other programs at the college, the Black Studies program, the Women's Studies program, all benefited from political science faculty and, and probably wouldn't have succeeded without our, our colleagues. And uh, Professor Afinia got the, Black Studies program going. Mary Bell House was right at the you know, the ground floor of women's studies. So, so that's another way that I think we've we helped the institution. Black Studies, the original presidential commission to set that up was headed by Bob. And then he got he had to do something else. And then I was the head of the commission and didn't have much to do with Black Studies after that. But I think the two of us did contribute a little bit to getting it started. And then we always hosted, or many years, we hosted the head of the Black Studies program as a political science professor. Right. So, so anyway, that was uh, gratifying. Okay. Uh, anything else? Final thoughts, colleagues, friends? There are well, a lot you, more you, things. Uh, yes. What, what a long, strange trip it's been. You haven't, you haven't asked me to talk about my yes. post-retirement oh, right. <laughs> literary <laughs> career. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we should tell the listeners that uh, Professor Pierce's <laughs> other claim to fame, besides being a great Latin American scholar, was being a uh, aficionado of the Grateful Dead. Oh, yeah. Which you, which you entertained your students with over the years. I, uh, I, the best anecdote of that, and, and I wish I could remember the young man's name, but I was teaching, uh, I was teaching uh, Introduction to American Government in the Honors Program, which I did for a number of years. And I walked into class with uh, a Grateful Dead coffee cup in my hand. And after the class was over, this young man came up to me and he said, is that for real? And I said, <laughs> yeah, why? And he and, and <laughs> He, uh, he was a, a fervent deadhead. He knew all kinds of anecdotes and things and so on. And, and that became the beginning of a very informal but long-going research project. Because now, if anybody listens to Grateful Dead music, they're listening to a band that stopped performing in 1995. And so the question for anyone younger than 40 years old is, how did you learn about this? Or why, is, why do you have any interest in this? And I've gotten a lot of fascinating answers over the years. This kid's was, his uncle was a deadhead. And at the time, this was before 1995, he was still traveling around, going to shows, traveling around the country, following, following the Grateful Dead. So yeah, it's been fun. What a long, strange trip it's been. Okay, well, uh, Bob, Mark, thanks so much for uh, joining me today for these, this, trip down memory lane <laughs> and it has been a strange trip in a lot of ways so uh, thanks again to you uh, my guest and uh, thanks for being faithful listeners mark and bob to be on your newsfeed uh, and thanks to chris judge who produces uh this podcast 
And thanks to all our listeners uh, for uh, listening. Please tell friends about our podcast that you can download wherever you get your podcasts.